Hello and welcome to Posting Up, the Washington Post NBA podcast. I'm your host, Tim Bontemps, national NBA writer for the Washington Post. And we're going to have a fun episode today because my friend Vince Goodwill is on from Comcast Sportsnet in Chicago. The always ready to have an opinion, Vince Goodwill. So, Vinny, how you doing, man? <laughs> I'm doing well. I, I like the intro until you came out and made me seem like I was uh like I was Trumpish or something no, like that. <laughs> no, you're entertaining. You're you you have an opinion on everything. It's a good thing, especially for a podcast and and especially for this podcast because I, I just finished recording one with John Krasinski about Tom Thibodeau being hired by the Timberwolves and the fact that Tom was hired and is bringing in Scott Layden to be his general manager. Um, circles back to a topic that you have covered a lot extensively over the last couple months. Um, I encourage people who are listening to this, if they haven't already, to stop and go uh, find Vinny's good Vinny's uh, Vinny's Twitter handle. It's V Goodwill, right? Yes. Sir. Yeah. Go go find Vince's. Look up Vince's profile and read the pinned tweet at the top, which is a a long story that Vinny did a couple months ago, um, talking to Mark Tatum, the deputy commissioner of the NBA, about the lack of African-American uh, front office executives around the NBA. Or, and, uh, or I should say front office executives, but guys who are actually in charge of the organization. There's a lot of guys that have secondary roles with teams, but, but few that are in charge of them. And one of the guys that was left in charge of a team was Milt Newton, who was the general manager of the Timberwolves, um, was brought to Minneapolis by Flip Saunders where, from Washington, where he had worked with Flip there. And uh, last week when um, when owner Glenn Taylor decided to remove Sam Mitchell as coach, he also had said that, that Milton Newton's status was up in the air. To me, that immediately signaled that Tom Thibodeau was going to be his first target, which he was, and he wound up being the guy because um, Thibs had said he wanted to have control of an organization, and he went out and brought in a guy that he was comfortable with in Scott Layden, who he knew from his time with the Knicks and had been around the league with him. But... That also means that there's another um, African-American candidate that isn't running a team anymore. So, um, Vinny, if you could, uh, for, for, people who, um, for people who don't know the background on this, can you just kind of walk through the situation right now in terms of um, you know, what African-Americans are running teams and, and why, you, why you think this is a, a problem worth discussing? Well, it, it's interesting because we all know the NBA as being sort of a leader in diversity. Like, they're not the NFL. They're certainly not uh, Major League Baseball. But, you know, when you consider a uh, predominantly African-American league, they've had more uh, African-American and diverse representation across the board better than most sports. But in the past, maybe in the past four or five years, it's begun to trend downward and it's gone more faster than maybe one could expect to the point where it's becoming alarming and I, I did the numbers where basically since the summer of LeBron, the, the 2010 summer, you know, there's been 32 jobs or, or 30 jobs basically starting that summer, 30 jobs of president of basketball operations or general managers, i.e. executives with basically final say on basketball matters with the exception of an owner. And the numbers basically said that after four guys were hired that summer, I think it was uh, Billy King, your, your, one of your favorites. Uh, he was he was hired to bring into Brooklyn. Uh, Dale Demps, I believe, was hired. No, Dale Demps was hired that summer. Lance Blanks and Masai Ujiri was hired in Denver. Uh, but since then, Masai is going to Toronto where he's doing a, a really good job. Doc Rivers has been hired and Demps is currently still in New Orleans. But basically, you only have three guys left as far as final decision makers in terms of basketball operations. And my thing, my thing, Tim, was, you know, there's a bunch of guys who have been knocking on the door for years who have been waiting for, not waiting for a chance, but they've been, they've earned the opportunity. They've earned the chance to at least become interviewed when jobs have opened up. And a lot of guys haven't gotten a chance. They're not being put in front of the owners uh, whether it's the quote-unquote analytics era, and that's, a, of course, an over, oversimplification of it, but the analytics era and now in the you know the vein of Tibbs is the, the combo, the coach-president combo, and those jobs have all gone to white men or non-African-Americans. And it seems like, to a large measure, that 
a lot of black executives have done have been phased out over the past four or five years from making those decisions. And I wondered openly if the NBA needed a Rooney rule to see if those guys had to be put in front of owners so they, so they could know, you know, who these guys are to see that they're qualified because it just seemed kind of funky to me that for you know years and decades the NBA always had great representation at the top and then all of a sudden it stopped and whether it's narrative or whether it's trendy or whatever you want to say you know it just seemed to be alarming to me as an observer that the numbers begun to trend in a negative direction and honestly even since the story has dropped they've kept trending in a negative direction and it's not one job or another. I think people on Twitter today are trying to say that I'm down on Tom Thibodeau as a head coach or as a figure, and it's neither. I think he's an excellent coach. I think he's one of the good, really good coaches in the league, but I'm not sure what makes him qualify to have final say of an, of an executive operation because just because you're a great coach doesn't necessarily mean you're are, you are a great executive. And in the meantime, a lot of guys who should be getting at least looks, they're not even getting the looks. And I think that's sort of alarming to me. Well, it's a weird combination. And to be clear, you are an African American guy. Um, not yeah. that that, not that that really has an impact on anything, but just so people know. Um, and it, it is, um, and, and you wrote a great piece, and I, I thought it I, it was something that I was honestly thinking about writing. But I'm, I'm glad that I'm glad that you wrote it because I mean, look, you have a perspective on it that, whatever my intentions would be, I wouldn't be able to have the same perspective on it. And I, I was glad, I was glad that you you wrote that piece, and I thought it was important. Um, and and I guess what was the I was kind of mixed on what the final outcome was in in your mind. It, it sounded like. The league, you know, you, you had a long talk with Mark Tatum, who um, a lot of people probably have no idea who he is. I guess you should say he's the deputy commissioner of the league. And as you pointed out in your story, he's the highest ranking African-American executive in sports in America. I think he's um, he's, he's African-American and Vietnamese, right? Right. Right. So so he you know, he, you guys could talk about this on a, on a, a certain level. And and he pushed back pretty strongly on the need to have a Rooney rule and you kind of laid out both sides of why it's good and bad. I mean, I know since it's come into the NFL, I think the numbers of coaches have dropped, and um, I think maybe the number of executives have even dropped um, right. since then. So, I mean, that's not exactly a, a perfect fit either. Um, before we get into some of the pros and cons of tips and stuff, do you do you think that there should be one, or, or do you think that it's more a matter of doing other things to try to get these guys um, – better opportunities and, and more looks that they should be getting? I think it's more of the latter. And I'm not saying the Rooney rule in application the way the NFL does it, because that clearly has holes and it clearly leads to token interviews. Right. And, and nobody, and nobody, nobody wants, wants that. that. Right. Nobody wants that. My thing is, I think a lot of times, you know, especially when you have a new influx of owners and, and nobody, that's the one thing that me and the league, you know, disagree with is when you've had some of the old school owners who had closer relationships with former players who a lot of times tend to be African-American, they had less of a problem putting them, putting African-Americans in positions of power. The Joe Dumars is the Rod Higgins. You can go up and down the list of guys or even just. Guys like Jerry West, they don't have to be black. You know what I'm saying? The Jerry West, the Pat Riley's, guys like that. Right. Well, Pat was a player before he became a coach. And I think when you have a lot of times the new owners and a lot of times these guys come from a completely different world where they're not exposed to high-ranking African-Americans and position of power. And I think that's something that if they're not exposed to that, and understanding that the NBA is a completely different enterprise where the African-Americans go from being the minority to the majority, I think if you leave those guys to their own devices, they will fall back into their habits of their world, which isn't a problem because they've made billions of dollars right. to purchase NBA teams, but they don't understand that it's a different that it's a different world, it's a different landscape, it's a different layout, and maybe that the processes that they use to acquire millions and billions don't necessarily have to be cut and dry the processes to hire successful people because there are plenty of guys who don't come from 
the who don't come from that world. It's it's a meshing in a mixing of worlds. And I and I guess there was no final verdict. It was just to bring attention to the this is what the numbers are, not only to the public, but also to the league, because you never want to accuse the league of overt racism, outright racism. That's a very, very strong charge. Even if you do have the numbers, it's a very strong charge. Sure. So my step was, hey, let's talk to the league. Maybe the league doesn't know about the numbers. And let me present the numbers to the league, you know, even with Dr. Lapchicks and uh, his study that he does every year, which is really thorough and everything else. But a lot of times it doesn't go to the top of the basketball masthead, which is the position that I was I was focused on. Right. That's the that's the position that charts the course for the franchise. Not no disrespect to Milt Newton uh, when he when he was working behind Flip or Steve Mills or anybody like that, but they were executing someone else's vision. Right. Nobody nobody's going to say that Steve Mills is running the Knicks, even though he's the general manager of the team. And that's not a knock on Steve Mills, but Phil Jackson is running the team. You know, that's exactly. just the way it is. Exactly. Right. It's, it's just the, it's just the way it is. And and I wonder and and I guess I guess Tim, my thing my thing always no, my thing is if the shift is going in this direction now, whether it's the new owners or whether it's the analytics or whether it's the, the coach president combo, these guys are being left out in the cold after working for years and decades of earning the opportunity to be looked at. And they're not even being looked at. If they're being interviewed and they're coming up short in interviews and they're not projecting themselves the right way to have a certain level of leadership, that's one thing. But a lot of times, Tim, these guys aren't even being interviewed and the Rooney Rule at least served the purpose in one way of getting getting qualified people in front of owners who otherwise would not notice them, right. whether they're in building or around the league. And it's about exposure. You get the exposure once you get your foot in the door. Hopefully, at that point, it becomes a matter of bit, uh, um, a, a matter of merit as opposed to a matter of color or not color. Right, no, and and I when I said final verdict, I meant more in your mind. What did you think it? I, your piece just kind of laid out both sides of it. I was just curious what you thought, but um, I, you know what you. No, I, my, my thing, Tim, was I wanted to wait and see exactly how how the next few hires played out. Right. To be perfectly honest, right. And Minnesota, Minnesota being one of them, you know, it it just it, it literally status quo almost, and you and you wonder. You know, out of not necessarily the Scott Perry's and the Troy Weavers, although those guys are getting up there, you know, late 40s, early 50s, they may have chances, you know, down the line. But there's a lot of guys who've worked in the league for 25, 30 years and have this glass ceiling. And I do think it's a problem. Don't get me wrong. I'm not sure if the league needs a Rooney rule, but I think it's definitely something that they should look at and not necessarily ignore and just say, well, it's just a trend. Like, I think that's an easy excuse to say, well, it's just a trend and it'll turn back around because basically you're leaving it to devices and saying it's out of our control when, to be honest, it is a, a lot of times it is in the league's control. They just don't want to have their fingerprints directly on it. Right. I.e. Jerry Colangelo and Sam Hinkie. Yeah, right. Well, and it's funny because you you kind of you struck on it just in the last few minutes. You kind of struck on it. The the NBA is in kind of a fascinating place, right? Because yeah. you know, in most of these leagues, like you said, they had to get to a point where the there was it was all right. We've got to we've got to get more minorities involved because it was these leagues that were just all run by. Um, by old white guys who kept were not interested in, you know, whether it was baseball, just having outright, we're not going to have another league, or football, just, you know, kind of ignoring guys. You know, basketball, because of the, the way the league started, a lot of, like, Jerry Colangelo bought the Suns and, like, just ran the Suns for 40 years. Right. I mean, he was basically the GM right. of the team. So, and a lot of these teams worked that way. So, you you had these owners kind of, it was kind of like a small business and so they were you know working with the players all the time and they knew these guys and it was it was a much different environment and so for them it was like oh i know this guy i'll hire him you know and it there was like you said all throughout really the nba's history you know it's one reason why i think it's cool being part of the league there's i mean especially now there's people from all over the world but i mean you it's it's really kind of a you see people of all colors and shapes and sizes at all levels really of most of these teams, but 
the way the way that you laid this out, it's really true in that over the last 10 years or so, there's been two significant changes in the NBA. The first is that it's really embraced this statistical revolution in sports. And so right. you see a lot of guys like Daryl Morey and um, Sam Hinkie and Sam Presti and, and just a lot of these guys who were kind of, you know, worked their way up from video rooms and, and did number stuff and kind of, you know, didn't have the typical route through playing um, to getting to a front office job. So a lot of these guys are younger guys. You know, I think Sam Presti took over and he was in his early 30s. Sam for Sam Hinkie. Uh, Daryl Morey, I don't know how old he was, but he, you know, he worked in the front office in Boston for a while. You know, you can go around the league, and there's a lot of these guys who kind of came up through that system. And I do think that as this current generation of players gets older, I think that will kind of rectify itself because I, I don't know about you, but from my dealing with players now and just kind of the way the game is changing, everybody's aware of all of this stuff now anyway and is pretty fluent in it. Um, even in a way that two or three years ago people weren't. So I think by the time guys in our age group are retiring and going into front offices, I, I think that is going to go away as being any kind of an impediment. However, no. but no, but I was going to say, I want the second point I think is the bigger one for me. The, the, more, the more interesting thing that you brought up, and I think is something that could be a long-term thing, is this new influx of owners. And you have all of these owners who are coming into the league, and this is not, I'm not trying to paint all these guys as being, you know, only wanting to hire white guys from MIT. So I'm just going to say that off the top. However, you have all these hedge fund guys buying these teams and they come into the league and they are going and hiring guys that are white guys that work at hedge funds. Like Sam Hinkie, I mean, look, I've talked about Sam Hinkie enough I think he was doing a pretty good job. I think he handled the PR poorly, and that's what cost him. But I think in two years, Philly's going to be pretty good because of the moves he made. However, all that being set aside, Sam Hankey could have easily fit in a boardroom at Apollo, which is Josh Harris's uh, hedge fund or right. his holding company or whatever exactly it is, Apollo Management or whatever the exact title. Um, but Sam Hankey would have fit right in there. And and he you know he comes in and he he basically says to Josh Harris, we should treat this like a stock, and we we can you know we can essentially buy low and build it up over time, and that that's exactly what they did. And now Josh Harris has got a team that's worth three times as much as when he bought it, and you know they they ran it they basically ran it like a like a hedge fund and like buying stocks and you know let's sell off this guy and do this and do that and. That is the way, given how expensive these teams are, that's the way the league is trending. And it is it is interesting to me that you bring that up in that it, these guys are not coming up the same way that owners did 20 and 30 years ago. And I do wonder if that is something that is playing somewhat of a role in the way these hirings are going. I think it's playing a huge role, Tim, in the way that these, things are being higher. I mean, the one difference, the, the big, biggest difference, I would say, that the Hinkies and the Daryl Morris, maybe just those two guys, because those are the two that stick out to me. The biggest thing that those guys haven't figured out how to translate is that it's a people business. And you said Hinky with PR. And I also just think it's about the meshing of personalities and understanding the terrain and for the African-American guys, it's almost being viewed for those, because they're people people. Right. That's viewed as a negative. And it's like either you're a numbers guy or you're a basketball guy. Right. Basically, you know, and it's an oversimplification of both, both things. Yep. But the, but the one thing that the guys, at least that the numbers guys are sort of learning or at least, or at least those two guys – have learned or should have learned is that it's a lot of, this is a relationship business. And a lot of times those relationships worked for them in the boardroom to get them where they are, but those relationships didn't help them build relationships with the people that they needed to build them with. And I'm going to say fortunately, but that's the one thing that the African-Americans were told that they had to do. If you weren't a former player 
and you didn't have the natural cachet of being a Hall of Famer or someone, you were told, here's the goalpost. Here's the goalpost. You start on the 20-yard line. You you coach, be it college, uh, anywhere, AAU, whatever, and you work your way up through every branch of team administration. And for a lot of guys, they've done that. College coaches, college assistant coaches like Troy Weaver at Syracuse, he turned that into Utah. He turned that into um, uh, Oklahoma City. And now Troy has become basically the number one, him and Scott Perry, one and one A, however you want to call them, basically the next in line African-Americans at the top of the list that you would say, hey, if I want to, these are the guys that I should be calling when a job opens up. But, and Perry more so than Weaver, Perry's been a VP at three different franchises. Right. And hasn't gotten one call for president of basketball operations position. Yeah, you know, I mean, you hear Troy Weaver's name a lot. You know, and, and I, yeah. I know I'm in Washington. He's a D.C. guy. I mean, Troy, Troy. Yeah. I think Troy's going to be a GM pretty soon, and if he's not, he should be. But you don't you don't hear Scott Perry's name at all. And part of that's because no. he's in Orlando, and part of that's because before that he was in Detroit, and it, those aren't exact. They haven't exactly been sexy teams for a while. But but you you just don't hear his name at all. No, at, le- at least no, you hear no. Troy's name. No, here's the crazy part with Perry. He was part of the remnants of success that they had with that Pistons franchise. Right. And, and he came to Orlando with the trade of basically the summer that they traded uh, Dwight Howard to, to the Lakers and basically just draft and trying to rebuild it and everything else. And But the thing is, like, look at a guy like Scott Layton. Scott Layton did not do a very good job with the New York Knicks. He was the guy before Isaiah Thomas when the Knicks were, I would argue, that maybe he did a worse job than Isaiah Thomas with some of the moves that he made, but he went to San Antonio and got the, uh, he went through the Spurs car wash, so to speak, and now he's in a position where, no, he doesn't have final say, but he's in a Milton Newton position where he can at least execute a vision from a high position where a lot of times African Americans don't even get that, they don't they don't get that that benefit of the doubt, they don't get that they don't get it either way it goes. So back to my original point was when, when they climbed the ladder, the Perrys, the Mark Hughes, the, you know, the, all these guys that are coming up, they were told to do all of this stuff and said, you know what, once you, once you become a assistant GM and you go from personnel and you go from scouting, you do all this, then you will have your shot. And all of a sudden the goalposts change. And whether that was the analytics and the new owners or whatever it was, the math changed and they can't go back and say, "Okay, well, now I'm going to go to MIT for four years and completely change up, you know, my qualifications. And they also aren't given the opportunity to say, hey, if you bring me in, I can show you how much I've learned with the numbers without having to be termed a numbers guy. Like I've seen these guys' presentations, like, hey, if I get an interview, this is what I'll have. These are the these are the advanced stats that I love to look at, and these are the things that I value. But you would never peg them as numbers guys because they don't go to Sloan every year, or they're not from well, MIT, right, right. just because of the color of their skin. Well, and you, you summed that up before. I mean, I'm this whole numbers guy, and I talked about this with Seth Partnow, the other day, we we talked a little bit about your story on that podcast about the Sam Hickey stuff. This, and you said it well earlier. The whole number, like numbers guy and basketball guy thing, is is such garbage. It's anyway. Right? It's on both sides. Like both sides, it's a dumb argument. It's lazy. It's right. very, it's very lazy, and it, it's it's disrespectful to both sides. Right? Said, you're too smart to know people versus you're too dumb to know numbers. Right. Either way, it's denigrating, it's denigrating each side, and it and the trend is that it's hurting the quote unquote basketball, whatever it is, it's hurting the African Americans more than it is anything else because once again, they're not even getting looks and opportunities to show how to show exactly what they know and what they don't know about running a basketball team from any branch of administration. Well, and part of that too, man, you know, there's a lot of stuff here to unpack, right? Because a lot of these jobs just don't open up very often. I mean, you know, some of it, some of it's as simple as that. Not not to try to make excuses, because I'm not, but like R.C. Buford's been in San Antonio for like 15 years, 
And, you know, he's probably, he probably could be there another 15 if he really wants to. Ernie Grunfeld's been in D.C. for like 15 years. Uh, you know, even even guys who didn't have great tenures, like Billy King with the Nets, you know, he was there for six years. Um, Mitch Kupchak has been in L.A. for, I don't even know how long, 20 years maybe? Um so yeah. there, it's that. I mean, that's kind of the other part of this is like if you get into one of these jobs, generally you're there for a while. And, yeah, no, it's and, true. And, and no, but I was going to say out. What I was going to say was it, it. It almost doubly compounds it where if you don't, if you have a a a a period like this where you know there's a four or five year period where there aren't really any opportunities for guys, it's almost doubly compounded because the way these jobs work, if you do kind of skip a cycle like that. It's almost going to be two cycles worth because there's not going to be that many openings for the next period of time after that. No, you're right. And, and since 2010, I've estimated, I, I've done the numbers, that it, it was, at least at the time of the story, it was 30 positions that have opened up. Now, granted, you know, Philly went through the Tony DeLeos and, you know, some certain positions opened up right. quickly, you know, more than once. But they're, like you said over a four or five year period, that's basically a turnover or six year period. That's a turnover of an entire league. And like you said, if there is a trend that a league is going to go into, it doubly hurts you because it's not like there's 10 jobs that opens up every year. It's not like coaches. Front office jobs are not like coaching jobs. No, no way. No way. And, And coaches is a quicker turnover, which is why I didn't necessarily want to focus on the coaches, although the coaches are more visible, and especially in NFL, where coaches seem to take more of a, a public persona with the fans more so than the background GMs, you, you know, I, but the one thing with the NBA is the front office more so charts the course for where the, fran- for the franchise is going and where the NFL, it seems like the coach in the front office works a lot in concert. Right. The, the NFL, office, the NFL, you've hey. got to, you've got to make, you've got to make the coach's system work. You know, right. you got to find, you yeah. got to find pieces that fit what he wants to do. Whereas in basketball, there's only, a, you, you basically have to do with whatever players are on the court or you're right. not going to win. So, no, and, that, and, that, and, that's the, and that's the interesting thing. Like, like that's why a Rooney rule is so weird you know, to try to bring from the NFL. It's not like the NFL is some bastion of virtue. You know, let's, you know, Tim, you know, some of the things that we've seen over the past few years that we haven't had to cover as basketball sports writers, you know, it, trust me, the NBA is ahead of the curve in a lot of different ways. So I don't want it just to be taken as me bashing, you know, Commissioner Adam Silver or Mark Tatum or anybody else in the league's front office because they, they at least recognize that the there is a pro- there there is a trend even if they don't want to say it's a problem they're saying hey this is a trend and maybe there's something we should do about it i will give them the benefit of the doubt well i want to say i wanted i don't i don't mean to cut you off but i, I wanted i want no i wanted you to talk about some there were a couple things that um you brought up in your story that the league is doing on this front that i think are really interesting and i think will help a lot so um i i wanted you to kind of outline it for people so a both people know that that stuff is out there and B, it doesn't seem just to, to your point. So it doesn't seem like you're just here railing on, on the league for not doing anything. So, so what, what is some of the stuff that, that the league is doing to try to, to try to, you know, make this, uh, to try to turn this around a little bit? Yeah. There Tatum revealed to me in the interview that the league is creating a uh, basketball operations associates program for former players and other, you know, candidates to work, in the league office, what basically it does is it basically puts them through a car wash of every aspect of basketball um, operations. Whether if you want to be, if you're a former player or you've worked for a team and you want to understand what goes into every aspect of it, so you can go out and work for another franchise or put yourself in a pipeline, they're creating something. Basically, almost like a feeder system. It's, it seems like you know, at least that's what I, at least that's what the intention is. You know, to create a pipeline so that the candidates can understand, they can learn, and the league is sort of helping facilitate that. And I, I think that's that's big if you're former players and everything else. And we are, like you said, like you said, Tim, in locker rooms now. There's more laptops with synergy. 
um, up and everything else. So iPads. With yeah, that it, everybody, everybody's on all that stuff all the time now. That's why. That's why to me that part of that that part of this debate in a few years isn't going to exist anymore. Because or at no. least or at least or at least that won't be an excuse anymore. If if there still aren't being hirings at that point, then it will be. It'll be pretty hard for somebody to to try to use that as a reason why it's it still is going on. No, and I think that's the biggest thing is eliminating at least eliminating excuses. Like I don't like you say I'm I know you feel this way, but you know I'm not railing on here just telling the league. Well, the the league hasn't the league won't hire black guys, or they should. There should be third. There should be seventy five percent representation in the front offices like there is on the floor. I'm not saying that at all. And, you know, I, I, I think a lot of times when people hear that, they just think, OK, you're playing a race card and everything else. But there's, no, there's nothing like that. And I just want to clear that up just so people can understand exactly where both of us are coming from. And the second thing is they're what what Tatum also said was that they are creating a global inclusion council, which basically, at least from Tatum's objective, he hopes that it can streamline and evaluate other teams' hiring practices around the league to see exactly who they're hiring, why they're hiring, why they're hiring these people, and what their processes are, and if these processes are wide open. And if that's the case, theoretically, that keeps the field wide open, that keeps a, a certain pipeline of all areas going. Like, there's a place... You know, I think there's a place as the league evolves for every branch, not just, you know, quote unquote, black basketball guys or white hedge fund guys. But there's a place for virtually everybody to have a seat at the table. I mean, you look at a Becky Hammond and I can't think of uh, Becky Hammond as assistant coach with the Spurs for people who don't know. Nancy Lieberman is the Kings assistant coach as well. There's another lady with the Oklahoma City Thunder who's in their front office. I can't I cannot think of her name. And she could also get interviews and rise up the ranks in that way. So I think what what the league at least hopes will happen is that everybody has an equal seat at the table to where if nothing else, if there's not even necessarily equal representation, but there's equal consideration that at least they won't have to legislate something like a Rooney rule. I think the league is very strongly against that. They don't want the specter of a Rooney rule. I think they kind of quietly thumb their nose at what a Rooney rule is. They feel like they don't need it. So if they're taking these steps and maybe it takes a couple years for all of these things to sort of bear fruit, maybe they're giving themselves a little bit of time to try to figure it out before going to such a drastic measure. Yeah, I, I personally don't think that that's the way to go. Um, just because I just because I I, th- I personally think that a Rooney rule would just turn into um, it would just. Yeah, I think so. I, I would I, I think I think the stuff that they're doing. I think taking proactive. I don't. And I, look, I I defer to your judgment on this. On that, if you think it, it's a better thing or not, just from from my standpoint, it feels like taking steps like the ones they're taking, um, and and also just uh, and also like having you know having these players who now are in this environment, kind of you know coming to the end of their careers and going into front office roles and going into coaching roles. I, I just feel like that. I feel like that is going to be a lot more productive long term. You know, trying to find proactive ways to broaden the talent pool um, from that standpoint than saying, well, you've just got to find somebody to interview. You know what I mean? No, exactly. No, I, I completely I completely agree. And my, I won't say fears, my, one of my concerns is that, not necessarily without the training program, but if you don't have guys like Perry and Weaver and Mark Hughes and be some of the younger guys like a Brian Wright in Detroit, I think he's, I think maybe a year older than me, he might be 33 or 34. You know, you, if you don't, if these guys aren't in prominent positions, then there is no pipeline. Right. And if there, there's no pipeline, they, they won't be pulling up some of the younger guys who want to be executives who, who aren't former players and who don't know how to get in. I mean, it's not racism more so if a black guy sees a younger black guy and gives him a chance because he sees something in himself that's just tribalism. And no different than Josh Harris looking at Sam Hinkie and saying, you're from my world, I'm familiar with you, I trust you, that type of thing. I just worry that in the meantime, if the 
jobs keep dwindling, the numbers keep dwindling the way that they have, that you won't have a base of guys to have to create a pipeline. Even while this program is going, you, it's still a people enough of a people business. You know what I'm saying? To where you need to have relationships of at least like experienced people where you can develop a trust in a pipeline and everything else. And that in the league can't the league can't legislate a pipeline. You know what I'm saying? Yes. They can only they can only facilitate personnel becoming more experienced and becoming more apt. But if it basically comes down to who hires who, I think the more diversity, the better. Yeah, no, we uh, we're in total agreement on that. And one thing I one thing I did kind of skip over, and I do want to kind of focus on before we talk about the Bulls for a few minutes is uh, <clears throat> is the the coach and president thing. Um, I, I was trying to think. I guess if we count Tibbs now, there's what six of these guys. There's yes. there's Doc Rivers, uh, yes. Stan Van Gundy, Budenholzer, Mike Budenholzer in Atlanta, Greg Popovich. Um, now Tibbs, Tom Thibodeau with Minnesota, and, and am I forgetting somebody, or is that the extent of the list? I think that's it. Jason Kidd's role is kind of murky. And yeah, Milwaukee. You know, I, I wouldn't say that he is or isn't, but it's very, you know what I'm saying. Yeah, it's no, trust murky. me, I I know all about the kid situation. It's definitely murky, but um, but he at least doesn't have the official title. So right. Um, so I guess it's I guess it's those five guys. Um, and, and Pop is kind of a, a separate case, but right. Um, you know, because he was a front office guy first, and then he wound up coming down right. to coach. So I never looked at Pop as a coach first, right? Who won the title? I looked at him as an executive right. who came to. Coach. But the, the the those situations are all kind of unique. Um, the the Budenholzer situation is just a weird one where, and to be honest, him and him and Doc have kind of the exact same scenario. Now Doc has obviously had more success as a coach because he's done it a lot longer. I'm not saying they're the same level coach, but. Those are two guys who were who were in place when, ironically, a racial situations happen in both both organizations, and those guys kind of benefited from it in the end. Um, you know, not that it would have been obviously it would have been better off. You know, in both cases, if well, I don't know. I guess it probably would have been better off for the Clippers because then Donald Sterling would still be the owner of the team. But uh, but you know, those guys both kind of got elevated because they were the only ones there and just kind of sucked up all the all the power that was around them and uh you know kind of benefited from it whereas you look at Stan and and Tibbs and those were two guys who um you know who who clearly wanted to have that kind of control over a team um when they you know when they got on the market and were going to they weren't going to take another job you know I know you tweeted earlier that um, you know, you covered the you you were obviously around the Bulls last year when he left, and you and I, I think both heard the same thing, which is that he wasn't going to take another job unless he had, you know, if not total say in personnel, certainly a lot. And uh, I I just I I wonder, you know, I feel like that's kind of a limited, um, I feel like that's kind of a limited pool of people anyway who are going to really have that ability, right? I mean, there's only there's only a certain number of candidates. Outside of, especially outside of the Budenholzer thing, which is just a totally weird um, confluence of events there, where they had ownership change and everything else. Um, I feel like there's there's a very short list of people who could ask for that kind of power and get it. No, I don't. And you know what? I don't necessarily disagree with that. Although I think being a great coach and being a great executive are mutually exclusive. Things. Right. Just no. And just to be clear, I wasn't. I'm not necessarily advocating or or right, uh, right. either way. But um, I'm just saying. Uh, um, there, I, I'm just saying. There's only a certain number of guys that can't even ask for it. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And it goes back to what you said about ten minutes ago: is that these jobs don't come up very often anyway. Right. So if the jobs don't come up that, that often, but when they do the most visible people that they see because that great coaches aren't going to stop being great coaches too either Tim like there's going to be like yep. five years ago we didn't know who Tom Thibodeau was I mean yep. we knew who he was but we didn't know who he was same thing goes for a guy like uh for a guy like Budenholzer now we knew who Doc Rivers was but I don't think Doc's goal was to ever you know ascend to this type of position per se and neither was Thibodeau's so yeah although although it doesn't take doesn't take much 
I do think that coaches will continue to come through the pipeline. And if these type of guys have any level of success, that's also going to be something that owners look at because coaches are more visible than the nameless sort of faceless executives who have just who basically run their team and you don't see them on TV every week, you know, running up and down the sidelines. You know what I'm saying? Like there's a completely different visual. I think sure. we are visual. I think there's a visual people, especially if you're an owner where you might not know all the people around you, but you know who you see on TV and you know who you see getting interviewed publicly by the media day in and day out. And oh, maybe I like what this guy sounds like and that maybe I'll give him a chance. So while I, while I think that there's a limited pool of those guys who could actually qualify for those positions, if there's only a limited pool of positions that are open, once again, it seems like the black guys are getting shut out of those too. Right. Well, right. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I guess there's one of them. I guess there, there's one out of five, you know, and, uh, yeah. you know, and there's, and if there's only, you know, even if there are eight to 10 African-American coaches all the time, which there generally have been, um, you know, there's, that means that there's two thirds of them that are not. So there, there's that many opportunities that aren't going to come across before we get to the bulls for a couple minutes. Are there any, are there any final thoughts you have on this and it, just on the whole situation in general or where you see it going from here or what, anything you're specifically looking for, um, you know, moving forward from this point on this whole topic. Do we have to talk about the bulls? <laughs> we got to talk. I got, we got to talk about it for a couple minutes. I'm, no, I'm just, I'm just, no, I know. Just I know. No, no, I, I just, I just, I think that it'll be very interesting to see how this thing evolves. Not just this off season, but over the next, uh, for the next two or three um, off seasons, with and learning that it's very much a, this is very much a people business, and I'm curious to see how the people, be it from the league office, be it from the ownership, be it from the front office, how this sort of evolves over the next couple of years, like if we're still having this conversation, then I wonder what the next step is. And if they don't want a Rooney rule, what are they willing to concede? Are they willing to concede that they have a, that there is an issue here? And if so, are they willing to legislate anything? If not a Rooney rule, then what? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm going to be very curious too. And I'm, I'm glad, like I said earlier, I'm glad you, you have the right kind of perspective to write that piece. And I was glad, I was glad that you did now to talk about, another form of dysfunction, uh, the Chicago Bulls, briefly. Um, you know, ironically, I, I think you'd probably agree with this. Tom Thibodeau is not the kind of guy that really cares about personnel decisions. But I think he really wanted to have control of an organization. I, uh, From my understanding, I think you'd probably agree, mostly to avoid what happened in Chicago, where it just became this just endless battle between him and the front office there on eventually I think just basically who was walking in the door first let alone um you know basic decisions about playing time and personnel and everything else um you know obviously that situation ended very badly uh the Bulls bring in Fred Hoiberg this this season did not go well um right up until the last day of the season when at about six o'clock, apparently they they just kind of tell you guys, oh, by the way, uh, you know, John Paxson and Gar Foreman, the team's president and general manager, are going to talk to you guys right after the game, right after Fred's done the last day of the season. Um, just adding to the level of weirdness going on there. So, um, <laughs> at, at, as we head into the off season, you know, I, I know, I know it's 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 been kind of a crazy season, but. As we go into the summer, with everything that's happened there, what what are some of the things that you're looking for with the Bulls to try to figure out what what's coming next for this team? You know what they have. Let me say they laid it out, but they the front office, at least more so, John Paxson, who did most of the talking on the day at the end of the season. He tried to lay out the possibility that anything could happen. That trading Derrick Rose could happen. That trading Jimmy Butler could happen. That anything that could be in play would be in play because this season was so utterly unacceptable and they want to turn things around. Whether you actually believe that or not, I guess it's just a matter of interpretation and um, and also a matter of practicality. Like, you're not going to, at least you shouldn't, you shouldn't trade 
uh, a guy you just signed to a max contract who's in his prime and is the one impact player that you do have on this roster. I don't think that that would be a very smart move if you're trying to be competitive just because a guy's having trouble. If you think a guy's having trouble in the locker room or, or trying to figure out how to become a leader when he's never had to be a leader uh, on any team in his life because he was never the best player on the team before. So, you know, I'm interested to see, aside from what they don't do, with Jimmy Butler because I don't think they'll move him. I'm interested to see what type of players they actually go after. Do they go after tough-minded players? Because for lack of a better word, Tim, a lot of times they play soft this year. They play mentally soft. They play physically soft. They did not play like the physically, mentally tough team that basically no matter who they had out there, you as an opponent knew that you were going to be in for a fight. And many times they basically laid down for at the first hint of adversity. And I wonder if that's a if that's a function of the coach not being a quote unquote tough guy. Do you have to bring in a couple of tough guys to be lieutenants and carry out your message? If that's the case, the tough guys, Tim, are never really subsequently the pretty shooters either. The ball movers. The guys who, right. you know what I'm saying? The guys that, they, the, they're guys that don't play the way that the Bulls said they wanted to play after getting rid of Tibbs a year ago to bring in Hoiberg in the first place. Exactly. So right. they find themselves in an interesting position of, yes, we got to get tougher, but can, can we bring in players who fit Fred Hoiberg's vision and his offense in the way that we would visually like to play? More than the way that we would like to play, I would say to them if I were a Bulls fan is I want to win. I don't care how it gets done. And you wonder if they're so dedicated to the process and the narrative of trying to prove a certain person wrong that they lose sight of the actual goal, which is to win games and to get back in the playoffs. So there's a lot of questions, I think, at virtually every branch of the Bulls, be it the front office. Who are they going to go after in the draft? How will they handle free agency with the $20 million in cap space? So Fred Hoiberg being branded as a coach who who's not necessarily known as the toughest guy, who, despite the comparisons to Steve Kerr, does not have the same aggressiveness and attitude that Steve Kerr has to basically the players where you have their grows in an expiring contract year and he's coming off a year for the first time since 2011 where he didn't have surgery. And you have a guy like Jimmy Butler who isn't the perfect compliment to Derrick Rose and, and vice versa isn't the same, isn't the perfect compliment to him. How you handle the chem- the on-floor chemistry with the players, you know, as far as fitting Hoiberg's system and fitting what you used to be. There's a lot more questions for this team than has been in years past, and I'm not sure they necessarily have the answers to just take a year off of the playoffs and be right back in it this time next season. Well, and that I'm I'm kind of curious. I want to go. I want to do two things first. The first thing is I want to talk about Jimmy Butler because I, I was not there. You, you're following the team on the day to day, so I trust what you say. However, from hearing what John Paxson said to me, it seemed to be that the Bulls have to make a choice between Jimmy Butler and Fred Hoiberg, and. <laughs> And they are not going to choose against Fred Hoiberg, the guy that they brought in to coach the team. So I left that, I left viewing or in reading about that last press conference, feeling like Jimmy Butler's getting traded and that they're just going to blow this team up. Um, well, it, no, I, I understand why you would feel that way. Right. And, and I guess my feeling is with the way the Bulls have struck out in free agency. For God knows how long. This goes back before Gar and Pax. This goes back to the Tim Floyd era when they wanted Tracy sure. Grady. I think sure. of sure. They they have not gotten the high level. I mean, Powell's yet. the best for each that they've signed in a really long time, right? I guess other right. than, I guess Powell and Boozer are the two guys that they went and got. Right. Right. So you got Powell and Boozer, you know, and and Powell was more so. When Powell's uh, at the end of his career, too. I mean, he's still a good, very good right. player, but he's not even. He's certainly not in his prime. I mean, Boozer's the one in in his prime free agent, and he was probably what the eighth guy that summer. Right. Exactly. Right. He, was, he just be a guy that if you didn't get LeBron or Mario Stoudemire or Wade or Bosch or whatever, okay, we got to come with a consolation prize. Here's Carlos Boozer. Right. Give him a max. Right. right. It, but so with that being said. 
I think they have a very, very hard time trading Jimmy Butler. A hard time, a hard time partnering. No matter what they say, I think a lot of that was rhetoric mm-hmm. from from John Jackson, or at least nothing else. A message, a thinly veiled message to Jimmy Butler that hey, nobody's untouchable around here, which I think could be true if if, if the situation gets worse. But you have to fill that building up. That is twenty thousand people who do not want to go back to the Tim Floyd era, and trading Jimmy Butler would be the first step to or the most impactful step of blowing up what used to be known as a very consistent franchise. Now let me now, been- now let me pause for a second here. My my here's my thought. There's a team mm-hmm. that plays in the Northeast that has a long history of winning, that has a billion draft picks, that has a GM that's been desperately trying to make a trade for years. Could you see mm-hmm. could you see the Boston Celtics tr- offering a a million picks to the Bulls for Jimmy Butler and the Bulls saying no. Because to me, if they offer the, the the Brooklyn pick this year and a couple other picks, maybe maybe a couple Brooklyn picks and another Celtics pick, um, maybe something else, I, I have a hard time seeing that front office saying no. Cause then they, they can they can have they then they have their their new top five pick to start rebuilding the team around and they can they can kind of they have a young team then because you can you have McDermott and these other guys and you can you could pivot to you know we've got this young coach you got this young team and we're gonna we're gonna start fresh because this that we kind of ran our course with this group with you know the the Joakim Noah Derek Rose Jimmy Butler Taj Gibson Pau Gasol group and we're just gonna start moving on from it. No, put it like this. I think and I reported this at the in my postmortem that the Celtics did offer a package of players and picks, but they didn't include Jay Crowder. And I guess that was a sticking point for them. And that was a sticking point for the Bulls. And I think there was a report from uh, my CSN teammate, Sherrod Blakely, that the Celtics consider Jay Crowder uh, untouchable, basically. So unless the Bulls lower their asking price, you know, theoretically, for a guy like Jimmy Butler, I don't see that trade happening. My question to you on the flip side, Tim, is... What superstar, what star, what top 20 player got traded for a package of players and picks and won the deal? Besides the Boston Celtics trading past their prime players to the Brooklyn Nets and getting a package of players. Jimmy Butler is still very young and his and his and he's he's with his at probably about 85 percent right. of what his peak efficiency is going to be. He's still basically on the up climb and not going to come down right at the very at the worst he's going to be at the peak for the next couple of years and he, he right. might have a little bit more in him right either way he's a terrific player right so who wins that trade who who wins trades when you trade players in their prime to get a package of other players well, back of, well I, I just don't well i'll answer your question i love jimmy butler if i'm choosing between jimmy butler and fred hoiberg i ain't choosing against the player in that situation I'll just say that. However, I think, to me anyway, looking at this situation, and look, I mean, I know you, you haven't been in Chicago for that long, but we've both been watching, you know, we've been around the league for a while. We've both been fans of the league for a long time. The Chicago situation has been an interesting one for a long time, to put it mildly, um, right. in terms of their front office and how things have gone there, going back to, you know, John Pax and Vinny Nelldagger getting in a fight in the locker room, and just there's been all kinds of weird things there at the front office and and management and play and the coach and everything else. But it just it I like I said, it just seemed like you know back at the trade deadline, I think things were different for the for the Bulls, right? You know they could have right. maybe traded Powell, and that didn't quite work. And yeah, I mean I, I and I apologize, I actually had forgotten about your. Um, your your report about the Jimmy Butler thing. I should have done more research besides reading the Tatum article again before we started. But uh, I, I you know I think at the deadline things were different, right? They thought they could still make a run, and yeah. I think now, I think now, things are different there, and I think things are different in Boston because look, if the Celtics get lose in the first round again, and uh, do I think they're going to get swept for the second straight year? No, I think they'll win one of these games at home. But it's hard for me to see how they're going to win four out of five, or even win two of these games in this series. They just they don't have they don't match up with Atlanta. They don't have enough shooting. I don't think they can win that series. So 
if, if they lose two straight series in the playoffs and Danny Ainge has been trying to make trades for multiple years now, go, tried to trade a million pick for, to get Justice Winslow, tried to, you know, allegedly tried to go get Julio Okafor, um, you know, uh, been in play for Jimmy Butler, been in play for basically every guy, been in play for DeMarcus Cousins, like every guy that's kind of floated out there on the market at some point in the last two years. Danny Ainge has been just storming the gates with all these picks and all these assets to try to get somebody. And I just look at what's going on in Chicago, and I just look at Jimmy Butler, and I it to me it just it just makes sense because because if you're if you're the Bulls, because like let let me let me think let's let's think about it this way right. Let's say mm-hmm. the Bulls. This is what I was. We'll we'll I'll ask you this quick, and then we'll come back to that. Is Joakim right. Noah back next season? Yes or no? I don't think so. I would I would say he, it's a greater a greater chance that he's back next year than Paul Gasol. But you still say no. But I, I would still I would say less than fifty percent. Okay, so, so let's so let's say no. We'll say no to Joakim Noah. Paul Gasol's a no then, right? Right. So right. Are, are they going to trade Rose or not? Think Rose no. is back? No, Rose will be there. Okay. Rose, Rose will be so there. so you're not bringing Joakim Noah back. You're not bringing Paul Gasol back. So next season. Let's and let's I don't know. They're not I don't think they're getting any star free agent anyway, but let's say they get, you know, some decent big to replace them. I don't know. Whoever. Um somebody at a lower level than Pau Gasol. And are are they making the playoffs next year with that team? Here's the thing. No, here's the thing. I don't know. I think No, but I'm just I'm just saying like no, no, if if they cuz if they if they run this group back, right? Let's say let's say right. they keep let's say they keep Noah. Let's just say they keep him. They let Pau go just cuz they need to keep a big. Even if they keep right. Noah and he's and he's healthy, I I don't know if they're going to be good enough to make the playoffs in the East. The East is going to be a lot better. I mean, Washington should be better. All the teams that are in the playoffs except for I think Charlotte could get worse cuz Batum could leave. Jeremy Lin's almost definitely going to leave. They could lose some other pieces, so maybe they don't stay in the playoffs. But Washington's going to get better. Some of these other teams towards the bottom of the East, Orlando's going to be better. Um, Philly could be better, depending on the moves they make. They could have seven first-round picks on their team next year. They could. They're going to have a ton of money. You know that they're going to go spend money in free agency. Um, you know, there, there's some teams down there at the bottom of the East that could be better. Plus, the teams above them are all going to be good. So I, I don't. I mean, maybe they get in as a seven or eight seed, but is that really going to satisfy anybody in Chicago, or is it just going to be the same anger and frustration now, a, a year from now? Whereas, to me, from the front office's standpoint, if they make a a big trade for Jimmy Butler now, and they get a top five pick, and they get a couple other first round picks, and maybe they get Jay Crowder, or they get Avery Bradley, or you know whatever, Marcus Smart, they get some other piece like that. And they can turn the team over to Fred Hoiberg and say, here you go, Fred. You know, here's your team with these young guys. And they could sell that, and that turns into a four-year window, right? And to me, just looking at it, if you're going to keep Hoiberg as the coach, it just seems like if you run this group back, you're going to be the same borderline playoff team again. And then all hell could break loose even more than it is now a year from now. Because already now there are people ready to storm the gates in Chicago, right? I mean, fully, it, it, fully, fully agree. Here's my solution. And everybody that I've talked to, and you're not the first person to suggest that trading Jimmy Butler is the easiest course of action. But just because it's the easiest, just, I think it's sure. actually the laziest. I think it's the laziest course of action. <laughs> right. Honestly. I really uh, like, I said, uh, like I said a few minutes ago, I, I love Jimmy Butler. I think he's a terrific player, and I think he's a good guy, and I, I would not be trading him in a, in a hurry, certainly. So right. that's where I stand on him. I think I feel at least I feel like this. I think if how do I put this? I think most people feel like that Gar Foreman and John Paxson do not possess the roster, the creativity of knowledge to put together a decent enough deal around the league. Like I think before you have to answer the Jimmy Butler question, you have to answer the question of how many impact players do I have on his roster? that have value and Jimmy Butler is one because he fits all the criteria, but Doug McDermott, who's a bit player. I like, I think everybody's was pleased with the progression that he made 
this year, but this guy's a lottery pick. Like he should, the expectations should be higher than mere competence, in my opinion. <laughs> right, right. And 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 Nikola Mirotic was a guy who many people thought you know was in the rookie of the year conversation two you know a year ago. Yeah, he's disappointed too. And he and he's disappointed too. But disappointing and can't play are I think two different terms. Right. So when I say roster creativity, I mean hey, look, Doug is is nice, it's cool. But let's see what we can get for you on the market. Let's see who values you. Nikola Mirotic, same thing. I, I look at, and although I'm not the hugest fan of the setup, I look at what Detroit has done, where they got Marcus Morris for peanuts, correct? They got yeah. Jackson basically for peanuts. You found good players on either bad teams or disgruntled teams that – necessarily either don't make a lot of money or are coming up on a contract year and with the cap going up it's easier to swallow a 10 million dollar salary and an 8 million dollar player you know what i'm saying sure so I, that's what that's when i say when i say roster creativity i think it's a lot easier to try to build pieces around an all-star a top 20 top 15 player whatever you put jimmy butler in rather than saying okay let's just trade jimmy for spare parts so that way it creates the illusion that we're trying and it creates the illusion, it creates this image that we have to get the best players to fit Fred Hoiberg's system. I'd much rather put the onus on Fred Hoiberg and Jimmy Butler to find a way to coexist and for Fred Hoiberg to live up to the five year, twenty five million dollar contract that he signed last season, as opposed to making everything easy. Now, if you miscalculated on what you thought Fred Hoiberg was, fine. And I think if, if I think if nothing else, the Jimmy Butler trade will be a symbol of of an admission of miscalculating what type of strong coach you thought you had. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. And I, I that that's why I am I might be more fascinated about the next three months for the Bulls than just about any other team in the league. Um, except for maybe the Thunder, just because of the obvious with Durant being a free agent. Um, but I, I just there's so many there are so many possibilities in Chicago this summer with all the guys they have on the mark of the, coming up at the end of their deals. The fact that Derrick Rose in the last year of his deal, and there's a lot of teams. That, there's a few teams that could use a point guard. Maybe they decide to move on from him. Even though I'm with you, I don't think they will. Um, the whole Jimmy Butler thing, uh, you know. And now, you know, the coach that they didn't want anymore just got a ton of money to go coach the best young group of talent in the league. And if Ooh. if he starts winning games in Minnesota. You know, a, a, I guess that's what a forty-five minute plane ride from Chicago. I mean, it's probably a little longer than that, but not much. Uh, you know, that that's just going to set things off in in the Windy City even more. So, it will be it will be very this. interesting. And think about this: he landed in in Fred Hoiberg's former stomping ground. Yes, that's true. <laughs> that's right, Fred. Fred, that was that's the the funny thing is that. You know, the Bulls hired Fred Hoiberg, and it was always going to be either Minnesota or Chicago. It was always kind of the two rumored destinations for him to end up at. Um, yeah, I didn't even think about that. That is funny. It's uh, yeah, it's it's going to be it's going to be an interesting few months in Chicago, and uh, I know you will be all over it. So I've kept you for too long. You've got events to get to, so I'm going to let you go. But before I do, um, besides the the Tatum story, give uh, give people ways to find your stuff and uh, and plug yourself. Uh, well, send me your hate-filled tweets to <laughs> at the Goodwill. He'll answer. Twitter. He'll answer and, all of them too. <laughs> oh, there. <laughs> I might block you afterwards, but no, 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 no. I, I, I'm usually I'm usually a, a cross between condescending and dismissive on Twitter. Although, that, although that's not who I really am. In real uh, life. Uh, most of the time, it is who you are too, but. <laughs> <laughs> but you can find me on Twitter at VGoodwill, at B-G-O-O-D-W-I-L-L. And you can also find my work at CSNChicago.com, where I am a writer, TV, you know, all of those all of those things in one that we in this business have to basically do now. Like, I am, I am, the, I am Comcast's version of tips. <laughs> I do everything. <laughs> Except I don't have final say and I don't make $10 million. Right. Just, just everything else. Just everything else. Um. No, you definitely follow Vinny's stuff. He kills it on the Bulls, and he's a good dude. As much as I like to give him grief, but you can uh, you can follow you. you can follow me at Tim Bontemps on Twitter. 
Uh, you can follow me on Facebook at Tim Bondos NBA. Um, you can find my work at the Washington Post. Uh, you can uh, please subscribe to the podcast, give it a five star review on iTunes, um, and if you could, uh, that would you know that would be great. Also, thank uh, thank you to Glenn Yoder in the Western States for doing the theme music for the podcast. Much appreciated to them, um, Vinny. I know we talked about the Bulls for a while at the end, but I appreciate you coming on to talk about uh, what I think is a pretty important subject and one you uh, you wrote eloquently on a couple months ago. So. Um, like you, I'm curious, like like you, I'm curious to see what the next steps are there. So so thanks for talking about it. Thanks thanks for having me on. I appreciate it, Tim.